Money laundering is not a new crime. However, the growth of digital communications has greatly expanded the opportunity for money launders to find innovative new ways to hide their true intent. Some estimates suggest that money laundering could be as high as 2 to 5% of the world's GDP. Unit 21 is a customizable, no-code platform for risk and compliance operations. They offer a simple API and dashboard for detecting and managing money laundering and fraud. Today on the show, I speak with Clarence Cho, co-founder and CTO of Unit 21. Clarence, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Tell me about your background and how you ended up starting Unit 21. So I'm the CTO and co-founder of Unit 21. We are a no-code platform for detecting suspicious events. My background is in uh, security and machine learning. We do some similar work over here and help companies to detect anything suspicious to them, whether or not it's related to security. A lot of our companies use us for detecting money laundering, fraud, and really anything that is suspicious to them. That's an interesting use case. If I were in charge of one of those platforms, I definitely wouldn't want it used for fraud and money laundering and these types of crimes. But I also know there are, on a big enough platform, just weird edge cases happening. How do you tell the difference between that and actual fraud? For something, it's a lot more clear. For example, when you're dealing with payments through the credit card network, you know something is fraud when you, for example, receive a chargeback request. This is when the credit card transaction has been canceled or disputed. And for something that's a little bit less obvious, so money laundering, for example, it's notoriously hard to get ground truth around. So if you think something is money laundering, you frequently don't get a very clear feedback loop into whether something is truly an attempt at money laundering or not. Now, a lot of this is obviously a challenge because when we're doing detection, using machine learning or using any kind of heuristics, then having a very clear feedback cycle is important. But especially when dealing with something that has an incredibly long feedback cycle that has to go through maybe the U.S. judiciary system, then it's, it's a little bit harder. So that's a lot of what we do. We try to build models, we build rule sets for customers to detect money laundering, detect things that are a little bit harder to get feedback cycles around, and we help them to be more sure around the things they're finding so that they can be confident in their detection schemes. When I think about fraud and just transactions online, it's e-commerce that first comes to mind. Is that a common industry that you can deploy to? Actually, e-commerce is not the most common type of customer that we that we have. A lot of fintech companies, financial institutions care a lot about money laundering because there's real consequence for them. Now, money laundering is a little bit interesting because companies don't necessarily lose money from their consumers laundering money on their platforms. It's a little bit unintuitive. When someone launders money on, let's say, your payments platform, then you may not be losing money. In fact, you may stand to gain a bunch of money from this activity. Now, what really causes companies to care a lot of the time is regulation. Because money laundering is this is this event with huge negative externalities, every dollar laundered through the financial ecosystem causes ripple effects throughout the rest of society. And every dollar laundered goes into the bloodline of organized crime, human trafficking, etc. So the government cares, even though private businesses may not stand to lose anything. This is why 
if you were to operate any kind of financial institution, any money transmission activity, any broker-dealer activity within the U.S., you have to prove that you are doing all you can to prevent money laundering from happening in your systems. In the least severe cases of enforcement, if your platform is found to be involved with money laundering, you'll be given a warning. In the worst cases, you may be fined up to billions of dollars, and the person in charge of the money laundering program may also be sent to jail. So there's real consequence here. And the most typical kinds of companies that integrate with our platform is financial institutions, payments platforms, crypto exchanges, forex platforms, anyone that deals with the transmission, storage, and movement of money. And is the analysis typically in batch or do you do a real-time service? So we're actually somewhat in between. We don't just do batch processing and we don't just do real-time processing as well. A lot of our customers send us data in real-time. So when the transaction happens, they send us the transaction, but they don't actually wait for the response in real-time. Now, we are building stuff that allows our customers to get results in real-time, but today, a lot of our customers don't really care about getting these results in real-time because we're not in the critical path. Why this is important is because most money laundering and sophisticated fraud isn't detected in real-time. In fact, you may not want to detect and give the feedback to the adversaries in real-time because you want to observe patterns. And observing patterns requires you to collect data and take in one or two or three fraudulent or malicious events before you make a decision. This is how you capture the entire network instead of being greedy and capturing single events at once. This is a lot of what our system is good at. For customers that don't send us transactions in real time, we also support this. And we support this because a lot of our customers don't necessarily have a lot of engineering resources that are lying around available for them to build API integrations into systems like us. So what we do is we allow them to export data in CSV formats and arbitrary formats from their own internal transaction processing systems and then upload them into our systems so that they don't have to wait to get started. And our quickest customer that has gotten integrated has taken less than 24 hours because of this ability of ours to ingest data without having to write any code at all. Could you expand on that onboarding process? How do most users get their data into your system? By far, the most common way that customers have integrated data into our systems is via API. And this is because API is just the most customizable and the most flexible way of data ingestion. We don't have to worry about file formats changing and the parsers that we have available no longer being relevant, and customers can change this at any time they want. Most of the time, this involves them writing some code to integrate into our APIs. And the real challenging thing about building our software here isn't the fact that we have to ingest this data, even though we do ingest a large quantity of data from all of our customers. The most challenging thing, in fact, is that all of our customers deal with transactions and events and users but each of them actually has a quite different definition for what a transaction does or what a user can do in their system. This results in us having to build a somewhat more flexible system than we expected initially in order to support all the different use cases. I can go into a few different examples about why transactions are different and why detecting fraud and money laundering across our customer base is interesting and also challenging. One of our customers, Coinbase, for example, defines transactions as a trade of currency. This currency is you know, commonly US dollar and Bitcoin, for example. 
you're buying some Bitcoin with some U.S. dollars, and you transact with yourself. Now, another of our customers, for example, Chipper Cash, which does cross-border people-to-people payments within the African continent, deals with transactions that are flowing from one person to another. Now, the kinds of fraud models, money laundering models that are relevant for each of these customers are very different. And going one step deeper, the kinds of ways that they would model their transactions are also quite different. Just because of the different patterns of transactions and clusters that can form possibly from their own networks, we have to be flexible enough to encompass the different types of fraud models, money laundering models that exist within their systems, and be able to do this in as little with as little manual effort from us as possible. And that was perhaps one of the most challenging things about building our system. Is that the motivation for developing a no-code solution? That is, actually. A lot of customers, a lot of companies that were in financial services before really only had a couple of different options when they wanted to build something to be compliant with regulation. And they needed to do this because they needed to be compliant with the law so that they can operate their businesses. The first option is, of course, to build it themselves. And we see a lot of companies doing this, especially if they are tech-first companies, if they're building a fintech company in the truest sense. And a lot of companies will still choose to do this. But most fintech companies, most financial institutions are not fintech companies. They aren't technology-first companies and don't have spare engineering resources to spend on building up transaction monitoring systems to detect fraud and money laundering themselves. A lot of the time, it doesn't even make sense to. So what they do and what they used to do was to go to one of the -the off-the-shelf solutions out there. A lot of off-the-shelf transaction monitoring systems for detecting fraud and money laundering was built in the age of transactions when you could only transact with banks, mortgages, home loans, um, things like that. And we realized that these systems were not nearly as flexible enough to be used in the age of fintech, where there are literally hundreds and thousands of transaction models being invented And every day, there are a dozen new different ways of laundering money than there existed before. This is a great, great thing that's happening for money launderers out there. But it's not so great for the regulators, for people trying to keep the financial ecosystems clean. Because it is easy to present a new way of transacting, but it is really hard to find new ways of exploiting this system and to find ways that we can detect when someone is exploiting these systems. So a lot of what we tried to do was to lower the barrier of detection and to make it such that people within companies that are in charge of detecting fraud and money laundering don't have to be the best engineers or don't have to be the best data scientists available. Frequently, they are not. Frequently, they are not even engineers. And we wanted to give them the tools and the powers to engage with their data, the data that they're collecting anyway, in ways that they previously weren't able to. Our tool allows them to do this without having to write any code and knowing about databases or tables or queries at all. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of uh, maybe someone with the title Senior Fraud Analyst. They're going to utilize the tool. Is this something they log in and configure or do you have some maybe pre-developed recipes for them? It really depends on the customer and what they're looking for. About half of our customers come in and look to us for expertise. 
because we are involved with a large number of different industries and different customers, we have a unique view into the type of rule sets, type of models that are relevant to different customers. For example, if you're starting a new crypto exchange today and you wanted to find out how are other crypto exchanges dealing with this problem, then you don't need to come to us with all the expertise already prepared. What we can do is to provide you from within our software the most popular kinds of models, the most popular kind of detection scenarios that other crypto exchanges have also found useful. And we do this not only by looking at the number of models that different crypto exchanges using our platform are deploying, but also by telling you what the false positive and negative rates have typically been when other crypto exchanges have used this. Now, then you can get started without necessarily having to build all the expertise and hire the most competent AML experts in-house to do what you need to get done. A lot of our customers, however, also come to us with all this prepared. They've hired the best teams. They have operations teams that have been dealing with these problems for years and years, whether within their companies or within other companies. Now, what we then allow them to do is to use our software and express what they want to express without having to describe this to a team of engineers that may or may not understand exactly what they mean. And this is really what's challenging here in the, in the detection piece. What we're purporting to allow our customers to do is not only to have a detection model that allows them to detect anything suspicious, but also to promise that whatever they want to find, they can express it within our system without writing code. And we can productionize this, allow them to backtest this, validate this, and deploy it without involving any engineers. This is challenging. We're not all the way there yet, but we've gotten so far along since we started. And we're confident that this is not only a really interesting problem to solve, but also a never-ending problem that we can solve. Do you have any insight into the way your customers consume the data and feedback you're giving them? I could see it being something where there's just you know rough analysis and exploratory things, or perhaps there's some split-second decision, real-time automation use cases. How do people deploy it? Again, this depends on how our customers use us. And the way we've designed our system is dependent on how our customers are thinking about risk mitigation and their appetite for risk. Some of our customers have teams of people that look through queues of alerts that are flagged by our system. Whatever they design to be suspicious in our platform flags alerts and flows into these queues. Now, these operations teams then go through these alerts one by one and make decisions on them. Because it involves some kind of human review effort, and these reviews frequently take minutes, if not hours, after the transaction occurs, the user, the customer, frequently doesn't block transactions from happening before it flags an alert. Some of our customers, however, choose to block these transactions. And this is because maybe they have a lower risk appetite or because every transaction presents them a much larger financial risk. Now, you can understand this if some of our transactions that we deal with are maybe on average $50, well, some of the transactions that we deal with are on average $500,000. In the case of the $50 transactions, you may be okay letting a couple slip. But in the case of the $500,000 transactions, you may not be so willing. So in the latter case, then what our customers frequently do is to put the transaction in a hold until the agents, until the operators have had a chance to review them. 
And after the review, if the operators decide that this transaction looks okay, they'll let it through. If it doesn't look okay, then what they'll do is they will pause the user account, they'll suspend the account, maybe pl place them under further scrutiny, lower the transaction operating limits, etc., to prevent any further repercussions in, on their systems. Now, some of our customers also use us entirely automatically. So whenever something is flagged, even if they don't have teams of people that review these alerts, they want to be able to automatically resolve these and automatically deny any of transactions going into any one of these queues if the alerts that are flagged are known to be true positives. If they're known to be bad and you know that you don't want to spend more time reviewing them, then this is what we can help them to do as well. We can help them to automate the denial of all these transactions so that they don't have to spend any of their human time on reviewing these. This saves them time. My understanding of money laundering is you want to create a large number of transactions so it appears that they're coming from a diversity of sources when they're actually really one source behind the scenes. So that person doing that is by design trying to hide their behavior, leaving you very clues for machine learning to find. Is it possible to achieve absolute digital anonymity? Could this be a, a cat and mouse game that doesn't end well? Yes, this is, I think, what makes the problem so difficult. And it's something that's not very specific to money laundering, but any type of machine learning applied to security problems or any adversarial contexts. This is what I spent a lot of time looking at previously in my previous life when I looked at how attackers can make use of systems to evade detection of quote-unquote next-generation or machine learning-driven detection systems. Now, I think the key to a lot of this, frankly, is to layer machine learning systems with heuristic decision engines, i.e. rule sets. And when you know the patterns that you're looking for, the ways that attackers can evade you are limited. But when the patterns that you're looking for are broad and unpredictable, then it's a lot harder for an attacker to try to go in and guess the patterns that cause them to be detected. This is what a lot of machine learning can play a part in, in detection. When you have fuzzy rule sets that apply to detection engines, then the real key over here is that we want to make these rule sets, they want to make the detection criteria as unpredictable as possible so that the traditional model of attackers trying to evade detection can no longer work. Now, of course, the thing you brought up about there being very few data points that an attacker has to be involved with is still relevant. Now, when we look at things like detecting spam or detecting DDoS attempts, this problem is not going to be prevalent because by definition, spam and DDoS attacks are large-scale attacks and it's very much suited to the machine learning paradigm. Because you can collect examples of spam emails, you can collect examples of network traffic attempts that are belonging to the DDoS category, and you can run classifications on all of these. But if you're looking at very targeted attacks like money laundering or some types of fraud or APT threats in malware, then it becomes a lot harder of a problem for machine learning because there are much fewer examples of the positive samples or the samples that you want to detect than you have examples of other types of samples, i.e. normal traffic. 
In some senses, it's, it may be more healthy to think about this as an anomaly detection problem or an outlier detection problem, rather than a classification problem in its more traditional sense. So what we do is to rely on heuristics primarily. And these heuristics, we try to mold recommendations to what the customers are going to be looking for. We don't apply machine learning to our, to our product in the most traditional senses. And we apply it in a different way to what most people expect we do. So we don't do fraud detection by trying to build a binary supervised classifier and detect fraud and not fraud. Instead, we think of this as a recommendation system problem. And we keep ourselves agnostic of the type of rules that people are running on our systems so that we can make recommendations to how they can improve these rules. If we find that they are flagging certain users that are performing some malicious activity that have triggered their rule sets before, and we see that there are other kinds of users that are similar in nature, but maybe haven't or wouldn't have triggered any of the rule sets in their systems, then we recommend this to them. And we recommend new ways of writing these rules so that they can flag these transactions. This is a way that I think people can really uncover the unknown unknowns and flag the false negatives. So fraud is going to have a class imbalance. It's kind of rare. And even then, I don't imagine you get a lot of labeled data, or maybe you do from your clients. Do you get much labeled data and can you make use of it or make use without it? Yes, absolutely. Whatever labeled data that we have, whatever our customers can provide us, is going to be helpful and very much welcome. Because we're dealing with a space where labeled data is so rare, we are doing all that we can to help our customers generate labeled data. Now, the reason we can do this is because customers don't just use us as a detection system, but also use us as a review system. So whenever alerts are flagged within our system using our rules, it goes in the queues that operators review one by one in our system. Now, after every review of an alert, they make a decision on whether this alert that's flagged is relevant or not relevant. If it's relevant, how relevant is it? And if it's irrelevant, how irrelevant is it? So this forms a natural feedback loop that we can build in into our models so that we can help them improve their own custom models. Now, this is frequently rare. Before using a system like Unit 21, customers were very frequently using tools like Salesforce or Jira, Zendesk, you know, the very typical ticketing systems. And these systems weren't built to be labeling tools. In a lot of cases, customers even devolved down into using spreadsheets and Google Sheets to drive investigations efforts. And they would export their investigation findings from Google Sheets and have them be ingested by their own data science team so that they can use them to improve their models for detection. Now, all of this doesn't have to be as brittle as it used to be. In our system, they can define new labels to define uh, to add onto alerts after investigation and use this either internally within our system or export this from our system and use it to train their own models. Many of our customers don't just rely on us for detection, and we welcome this. The more that they build their own internal models, their own data science teams, building detection sets that are customized to them, and integrate the alerts into our system, the better our alerts get, the better our rule systems get. Because the more signal we get around how good 
our detection systems are in comparison to theirs, and we can improve. You're working with n number of customers in similar spaces. Is there any opportunity to federate the data to look across all of those and learn something in aggregate? This is something that we've been asked for so many times by our by our customers. It's really funny that even when we got our third or fourth customers, they were asking us this. And of course, back then when we did a study into how meaningful it would be to federate our learning, we didn't find too much because there needs to be some meaningful overlap. Whatever the definition of the overlap means within your customer base, before you can build any meaningful consortiums. Now today we're at a much later stage compared to then, where we have customers that span several of our se- several of our use cases. So when you see a single user logging into multiple of our different customers, many of whom have flagged them to be suspicious users, then、uh, we can notify our customers on this. And this is something that we're uniquely in a position to do. So no company can really build something like that without having to build the consortium themselves by going to all these other companies in the industry. We see this being most relevant in crypto. Of course, when people using crypto exchanges to launder money to do surreptitious activity, they're not only just going to use a single crypto exchange. They're going to want to, by definition, if they're a good money launderer, use multiple of these systems. And the broader view we have over all of these, the better we get at this. Now we haven't really started to do a lot of this yet because we think there's still a lot more room for us to grow before we can truly release a product that people will be willing to pay for here. But a lot of what we do really is on the detection modeling layer. When we find a crypto exchange that's using a specific rule set really successfully, then what we do within our product is to Propose this as a rule set to other customers in the same industry, and they can then leverage this same rule set and most likely be able to capture the same user who is going to be exhibiting the same behavior across the different crypto exchanges. And this we find to be the most robust way to capture and share any of the insights that different exchanges, different industries of customers are learning from their customer base. It stands to reason that if you do a new software release of some new innovation in detection,、uh, could even be some prevention step that gets put in place. That there could be a stair step event here, where a bunch of fraud is suddenly shut down, and those criminals need to go scramble and try and evade your new tactics. Are you able to observe any interesting dynamics when you do a, a release and see people respond to it? Now that it's the problem has gotten harder for them. Yeah, this is really interesting. The economics of fraud, economics of money laundering, I think deserves more study. There have been some really interesting studies on this, where criminals that try to launder money online or commit fraud online frequently try to go after the lowest hanging fruit. So if they're facing some kind of setbacks with the services they're used to, then most of the time they won't give up. And it costs more for them to innovate around their solutions than to go to another platform that maybe has a lower barrier for entry. And this is this is interesting because it means that it's an arms race, but because the platform of all different ways that a money launderer can launder money or a fraudster can commit fraud is so so broad, it would be highly unlikely for fraudsters to want to innovate because they're blocked on some platform out there. So one example is 
if someone is trying to launder money through a well-known crypto exchange that is doing a lot to block these attempts at laundering money, then what they'll do is probably not to go a little bit deeper and to innovate around their solution, because most fraudsters aren't aren't the most technically enabled people. They have downloaded scripts, they have found ways of committing this kind of fraud and money laundering online, darknet forums and you name it. And they aren't necessarily the ones to do too much more to avoid detection, to spoof anything that they needed to spoof to avoid being characterized, and instead are going to go to a less well-known crypto exchange where they can hide their tracks a lot more effectively. So the cat and mouse game is occurring, but because of the broad surface of the different ways that fraudsters and money launderers can, can operate, this cat and mouse game is going to last a long, long time. There's a public perception that cryptocurrencies are kind of the Wild West, that they're a haven for criminals to do illicit transactions. And I guess that's plausible, but I haven't really looked into it. You're a lot closer to the data. Do you have any intuitive sense of the degree to which there's fraud and money laundering compared to typical commerce? Yeah. Crypto is definitely a really interesting space for money laundering. The thing that's interesting, though, is that many fraudsters at this point, I think, still don't know what crypto really can bring to them. There is obviously a very clear confusion between privacy and anonymity, and crypto only provides for one of them. So when we talk to some of the leading crypto exchanges around how they're attaining success in identifying money launderers and identifying surreptitious individuals that they are reporting to the governments, then we find that the, the general aptitude of money launderers and criminals using these platforms is still quite low. Now, of course, there is a self-selecting element in there because there is the high possibility of the real high aptitude money launderers and criminals not being detected. And the crypto exchanges, the crypto networks do present a very fertile ground for them to operate. Because if they're able to efficiently mix and effectively hide their tracks using especially one of the privacy-preserving privacy networks out there, then this is a real problem to the realm of money laundering. Even though there are techniques to probabilistically define if a an account, even in a privacy-preserving network, is involved with any surreptitious activity, this is still much more difficult to do than in a public network like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Money laundering is something that happens when uh, people decide to start laundering money. I don't know if there's any trends or patterns there, uh, but certainly there could be spikes and unexpected events that you can't predict. To what degree do the operations of your company ever have to assemble in like a war room type scenario? The COVID situation was actually really interesting for many of our customers that had to deal with different attempts at fraud. And when dealing with disbursements of PPP loans or any kind of COVID-related loan programs, obviously we saw tons of cases of identity theft. We saw cases where people were claiming unemployment benefits for other people uh, that they were not. And this was interesting 
there were situations where we had to jump on war room calls with our customers to deal with this because, of course, these programs are great, but when they're hastily implemented and whereas when there's not a lot of guidelines around responsibility and blowback, then this is troublesome. So we had to work with our customers to ensure that they were giving out the loans in a timely fashion, but weren't giving them out to the wrong people. Because, of course, uh, this would be catastrophic. So there are situations like that, COVID being one example. But in different times of the year, there's also differing uh, waves of fraud. Payment fraud, for example, becomes a lot more rampant at times when uh, shopping is a lot more rampant. So towards the end of the year, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you see lots of online transactional activity. You also correspondingly see a lot of waves of secondary financial events online where people transfer money and gift people money, and this causes a lot of fraud. A lot of criminals know about these patterns, and they commit fraud at times when there is much more of an increased volume within normal accounts, and they use this to hide their tracks. So if you wanted to launder a larger amount of money, Laundering it, in, laundering it around Christmas time would be a great time to do so because it's just a lot harder to predict the behavior of an account at times like this compared to normal times. Does that impact your ability to take a vacation? <laughs> yeah, in security and fraud, these are waves that people are used to. I used to work in security and also similarly, Christmas Day and Boxing Day was the time where there'll be the most attacks. And of course, this is something that is very unwelcome by security professionals everywhere, but it happens. If you look back at many of the APT attacks, many of the ransomware attacks, they happen during holiday, holiday season. And it's not fun, but it's also something that we know is going to be a pattern and being prepared for that allows us to at least remediate some of the, the work that we need to do during those times. So I've mostly asked you about the transaction monitoring components. How do you help with case management? Yeah, case management is the investigation piece. Now, we use the term case management because a lot of our customers know what case management means. But what, what case management means to us is a little bit different from what the old school systems refer to by case management. When we talk about case management, we're talking about what to do after something is found. Instead of just being what to do to release yourself of the regulatory burden after you found something, we find that a lot of our customers are not just interested in performing anti-money laundering detection for the sake of compliance. They actually care about their systems being clean. And we believe that's the far-sighted way of doing things. The more that you can guarantee to your users and the regulators and the public sphere that your platform is a clean and legitimate way of transacting, the more you can gain traction and foothold of the system. So a lot of what we help them to do really is to get to the bottom of everything that we flag and try to make sense of what's going on. We do so by presenting them with information that they need to make their decisions beyond just giving them all the transactions in a CSV format or a table format, we give them visualizations, 
help them to make sense of data without having to dive in all the way. And a lot of these decisions are going to be snap judgments. There aren't going to be situations where you can afford to spend hours and hours looking at transactions going on. This is naturally a challenging event because I don't know about you, but when I look at my credit card statements at the end of the month, it's challenging to find uh, transactions that I find anomalous, even if it's my own traffic spending pattern. But if you're looking at someone else's credit card transactions or looking at someone else's transaction history, how do you make sense of this? How can you quickly, within 30 seconds, figure out if something suspicious is going on here? That's challenging. So our job over here with case management is to really help investigators get to a decision as quickly as possible. Some of this involves intelligent UI design, but some of it also involves some prediction. If we see that there are some patterns in here that we can help them to uncover before they can uncover it themselves, then we'll do it. We'll give them suggestions on what they should maybe look at. And sometimes it's relevant, sometimes it's irrelevant, but from their dispositions on the alerts, we can get better. It seems like there would be an urgency to take an action when things are detected. Are users fighting the clock? There is. They are either fighting the clock because of the economic, the economic cost of reviews or because of the transactional flow. So the, the former is the most common. Because fraud detection, fraud detection teams and money laundering detection teams are frequently viewed as cost centers in a business, when you spend more time investigating a single alert, you spend you have less time to investigate other alerts, and uh, none of our customers really have the problem of uh, having too many resources. So they're all fighting against the clock. They're all trying to get to a decision as quickly as they can so that they can focus their time on the things that they should be focusing on, i.e. the more sophisticated types of fraud that require a little bit more analysis, a little bit more investigation, instead of the ones that are false positives or very clearly fraudulent and they can block. In the latter case where they're dealing with transactions, then it is uh, that there's a much more clear financial outcome to this when they have to make decisions to unblock transactions, for example, for their users, then they frequently only have one to two hours to, de to, to find out if a transaction should be unblocked or not. And when they have a queue of 100 transactions in their, in, in, in their backlog, then this is something that they have to decide on. So companies have to play around with the minimum thresholds for how, how large a transaction has to be before they spend analyst time on reviewing these, and this is a very much operational economic decision that companies have to make. It seems that in order to be thorough at investigating fraud money laundering, you'd have to get to the point where you're looking at at least a few false positives. Do you have to consider that in the design of your product, not overwhelming the user as you explore where the line is? Of course, alert fatigue is real. And we all know that you can effectively detect all bad activity if you were to flag everything and lower the bar for what you consider to be suspicious. But of course, this just means that your operators have to spend a lot of time to look through events and to you know, pick out the needle in the haystack. What we want to try to do is to both reduce alert fatigue and maximize the rate of true positives. So this is challenging because we're being pushed in from both ends here. 
we need to make sure that we're not over flagging some types of events and we're adjusting in, a, in as agile a way as we can so that customers will not have to deal with things that they already flagged away before that are going to be false positives, are clear to us that it's going to be false positives. And we can constantly change the thresholds in a way that allows them to inspect and audit the way that we're changing thresholds. These manifest in our product as recommendations on these rule sets. So our customers don't have to go through manual exercises to adjust the thresholds here and can rely on us to do so. Do you have any sense of how your customers utilize your services in their operations? Is there a particular KPI that you're helping them improve? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of this is really interesting to us because even though we're building the solution and we provided this solution to our customers, we're not involved in day-to-day operations that our customers are using our tool for. So it's only when we go back to them and run user studies or run case studies with our users, do we have any kind of visibility into the kinds of fraud they're catching and how they measure the effectiveness of their program. Now, with some customers, we found that just a couple of months of using our system, our system, they can uncover hundreds of thousands of dollars in fraud, which more than pays for the solution itself. And the agility that we're bringing to them is the true is a true winner here. Previously, because operations teams were disconnected from the detection systems, and they were only in charge of investigations. Operations teams weren't able to make decisions like change thresholds and change detection patterns and do things like that. They had to rely on going to engineering teams, describing to them the problem, and having this uh, be a secondary thing that they're involved with. When using our system, operations teams that know the problem of fraud and know the way that money laundering is changing within their systems can be the ones that directly run experiments and change detection logic so that they own the problem. They own the problem from start to finish. And this is a game changer to them because it means that the barrier for running experiments and their ability to understand the data and play around with the data is hugely amplified. They no longer have to rely on engineering teams, multi-week long sprint cycles, getting onto a queue of competing priorities, and get what they needed to get done, done. And they can do it themselves. So not only do we help them with reducing resolution times of alerts, we also help them to be a lot more agile with alerts and do things that they would previously require SQL knowledge, database knowledge, or data engineering effort to achieve. Can you speak to some of the interesting things on your roadmap or maybe that you're considering for it? Yeah. That's a good question. There's a couple of different angles to this problem. One is what we've learned from our own experience working with customers and non-technical operations teams who know the problem of fraud so well, but may not be the ones to write software to catch fraud. And the second would be what we expect to be some things within our pipeline for implementation in the future. So for the first, what we've learned is that when we first started operating, when we first started serving customers, we realized that the hypothesis we had around how to enable operations teams was not entirely right. Building rule sets, building logic on data, not only requires operators to be able to express logic, but also requires operators to understand data. 
And it's understanding their own data, not our data, because all the data ultimately comes from them. This is challenging because if you wanted to teach someone to write SQL, that would be maybe a little bit of a lighter lift than teaching someone to understand databases. But operators had to understand databases. They had to understand the way that data was modeled within their systems before they were able to very effectively leverage the data that they had and understand it so that they can be effective at uncovering data patterns for fraud and money laundering. This is challenging. So recently, we're starting to work on projects that can help our users understand their own data. And we're calling this data discovery operations. There is a lot of opportunity here where we can allow non-technical people to go up the stack and to really understand what it means for data engineering to occur. Data engineering doesn't just involve detection science. It also involves understanding data, slicing and dicing the information you have collected from users and understanding how data is modeled. This is a difficult task, and we see this to be even a bigger mountain to climb than the one we originally started on, because data is so much more sophisticated and so much more complicated, especially when we aren't the ones that design the data schemes. So when we have to go in and help our users understand the data that some other people in their company had designed, then we have to make the entire workflow, the entire user journey, a lot more intuitive than it would be. And it has been because all of the data discovery, all the data platform systems that are designed and built today are built for engineers. They're built for data engineers, not really for people that may not even understand what a database is. We look to some, some inspiration out there that have done some interesting work over here. Looker and Tableau, for example, have done some really interesting work with helping business analysts understand data sets. They both have different approaches to the problem, but we're leveraging some learning from those spaces and helping our operators, helping our customers understand their data better through user interfaces that visualize patterns for them, that use graph analysis to uncover anything that is potentially suspicious without necessarily having them understand every single thing around what a column or index means. On the other side of things for detecting suspicious activity within the fraud and AML realm, what is going to be really interesting, I think, is around the crypto space. As there's more and more traction within privacy-preserving coins, I see this as an inevitable thing that that's going to happen. How do we deal with cases whereby the fundamental principles of crypto, of anonymity, really goes against what is needed to detect money laundering, detect fraudulent activity, and to clean financial ecosystems? This is a problem that I think the entire crypto system, crypto community is also grappling with. There are, of course, privacy maximalists that are going forward with the, the very liberal standpoint that crypto is private, crypto should be an anonymous, and the reason why crypto exists is for privacy. But then there's also practitioners that realize that without the blessings of governments, without being able to ensure and prove from first principles, ideally without sacrificing privacy or anonymity, that people transacting on the networks are not using it for anything that is harmful and bad for social systems, 
I think this is uncontroversial, and this has to be addressed at some point in the future. There's been tons of research papers on this subject, and we're watching closely. We're also working with partners like Chainalysis, which does crypto forensics, and working with them to make sure that our customers that are using our product to detect transactions on crypto are able to do a good job. And this is something that we're keeping a close eye on. What types of organizations should be looking at your solution? So the type of company that should be looking at Unit 21, when we first started out, was only fintech companies. Our customers like Chime and Intuit, Coinbase, Gusto, Flywire, for example, have attained a lot of success using our product. Honestly, to a lot of our surprise, we were able to provide them with enough flexibility and customizability to use our software to detect things that we didn't even think of uh, supporting when we first started out. Now, over time, we've also realized that customers are starting to use us for different types of use cases. Because what we've built, essentially, is not a fraud and money laundering detection software. It's general activity monitoring software. Because we don't tell customers what to detect, and we don't build fraud models per customer, our customers really can use our system to build the models that they want to build for detecting the things that they want to detect. That's why we see companies like Twitter using our software for powering their blue checkmark verification program. So anyone signing up for a blue checkmark beside their Twitter username is now being verified by our systems. Twitter has hundreds of agents using our system, going through alert queues and making decisions on them. And the entire reason why this is possible is because none of what we've built is very customized to transactions. So what we're really excited about for the next 12 to 18 months is to go into new use cases. We think that instead of building a anti-money laundering solution, we are instead building a modern infrastructure for activity monitoring. Whether this activity is transactional or whether it is user profiles online, or whether it's insurance claims or accounts or anything that you might like to detect in a network system where no users are explicitly operating. We think there's a use case here. And we've started to work with some design partners to double down on these use cases with the goal of being much broader here and giving the tools that we've given to compliance and risk teams and fintechs to other operational teams that face the same problems. We see that there are dozens of use cases at least where operations teams that sometimes are in the dozens or hundreds within companies have to look through events happening within a stream of data and try to find suspicious events, try to find noteworthy events. Anything or anywhere where there's a pattern like this is a use case for us. I'm really excited about it. Clarence, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for having me here.